Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your regular hosts, Aaron, and with me for tonight's deep dive into the new dark universe are my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. And our main man, Kales. Good evening. This newest reboot of the Universal Pictures classic monster movie offers some really fun twists and turns, as well as plenty of terror, all within a new modern setting that frankly feels all too real. But before we jump into that conversation, I'm going to give you just a quick little announcement to say that our March donor pick episode voting is now going on through March the 10th. Our theme for this month is going to be films directed by women in honor of Women's History Month. And those five choices available to pick from are The Farewell, Big, A League of Their Own, American Psycho, and The Writer. Those were chosen by our Facebook discussion group via a poll. Our bonus content is going to be something that Patrick and I are both really excited for and we think is going to be a ton of fun. We are going to do a conversation about a five-year alternate Oscars discussion, essentially. So we're going to look back at the 2015 Academy Awards. We're going to talk about what we think should have won the top six awards, the big six, and then just discuss a little bit about what films have kind of stood the test of time over these past five years and what has faded away. So we think that that's going to be definitely worth your time. If you're interested in getting that, you can access that bonus content and all of our bonus content from the past for as little as a dollar a month and be a part of that voting for the monthly episodes as well. It's really, really cheap and it, your dollar means a lot more to us than it probably means to you, to be honest. And uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash feeling film. Uh, you can also go all the way up to like five bucks or you know, heck, you can give us half your paycheck if you feel so inclined. Haven't had anybody do that yet, but it's coming. You could be the first. Hashtag with, goals. <laughs> <laughs> with that said, this is your spoiler warning. We are going to be talking about the new film from Lee Wanell, The Invisible Man. And we are going to spoil the ever-loving heck out of it. And without saying anything specific at all, I'm just going to tell you, if you're listening to me talk right now and you have not seen this film, turn away. Turn this off. Go away right now. Don't watch a trailer. Don't listen to anybody talk about this movie. Don't even read a review. Just go see it because it is best experienced completely fresh with no idea what you're going to get yourself into. You will have so much more fun with it. You will have a much better experience. And then you can come back and hear the three of us talk about our feelings on the movie. All right, guys. One word, takeaway time. Kales, we want you to kick us off. So what did you settle on? My one word takeaway was abuse. I mean, because throughout the whole film, Cecilia, our lead character, is just facing different types of abuse, whether it's psychological warfare, whether it's physical, or even whether it's just like paranoia, which is a type of abuse, especially if it's forced on you by another person or individual. The whole film is just about her trying to figure out a way to defeat this invisible man who she knows is like her ex and everything. But 
also in a way is also a movie about somewhat trying to heal, you know, and having the support systems that are there for you to help you with that process. Um, for me, it's a horror film that is more psychological than all about jump scares, even though it does have jump scares, but more also about a compelling story about the impact and ramifications of toxic relationships that most victims who have been in that type of situation go through. So it, it, it does the jump scares and the suspense very well, but it also keys you in on very important issues like physical abuse. Yeah, that it definitely does. Patrick, what did you come out of this feeling like? Well, I tangent, I tangented. No, that's not a great word. <laughs> My word connects pretty well with, with glasses and that was spiral. And I think that Elizabeth Moss's performance on its own depicts a great, great performance. I put that in air quotes because this isn't great to spiral out of control. But from the jump, we get this depiction of someone who is trying to escape and throughout the entire story, we see this spiral of her almost losing her mental capacity, losing hope, losing the sense of wanting to find a conclusion to this relationship that she's had. Her relationship with Adrian puts her in this position where she is constantly trying to escape him even after supposed death. And I think her performance alone really, really personifies a sense of spiraling out of control and not being able to get back to a place of real normalcy. There were moments in the movie where I was feeling alongside her, I want her to take the next steps, literally, figuratively. And I felt like throughout the story, we get this downward spiral to a point of utter defeat almost. And had we not had the third act, I think I would have left the theater going, Wow, that was depressing. <laughs> Unfortunately, we had the third act, and I didn't. But yeah, Spiral's the word that I came away with. Unfortunately, we had the third act, or fortunately, we had the third act? Well, depending on how you look at it, fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> I hope it was fortunately, otherwise she would be stuck in a perpetual state of terror. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So it was fortunate. I did say fortunately. Uh, my one-word takeaway was very similar to Coles. Mine was Torment. It's, it's such an impressive psychological horror piece, and I think it's much more effective than the vast majority of supernatural films that I've seen try to do the same thing. It's funny because I was rewatching The Blair Witch Project just last night, and it struck me how strongly this kind of horror has always worked for me in movies, where you can't see the thing that is making someone go crazy but you're watching that downward spiral patrick that abusive action whether it's mental or physical that is taking someone and completely turning them upside down um, inside their head and oftentimes physically as well and these are obviously very different situations as to who's doing the tormenting and why but the characters in both of those films suffer extreme traumatic mental breakdowns because of these unseen forces. And torment is defined as severe physical and mental suffering. And that is exactly what we see in The Invisible Man in, that is inflicted by the titular character on his victim, Cecilia. And we also get the extra whammy of knowing about the torment that he has caused her previously when they were together in their relationship, what ultimately led her to this daring decision to 
run away and escape. And that's real stuff. And that makes it all the harder to watch. And, and it makes it more horrific because you know that there are people, many people, in these abusive relationships right now that are being tormented like this by their supposed, air quotes, loved ones on a constant basis who have to deal with these abusers that don't actually need an invisible suit to hurt people very deeply. Uh, and it was it was a really powerful takeaway for me just experiencing this one um, from the perspective that we got to see the story told from. Well, we've all said that the abuse is hard to watch and it's very realistic in its depiction. Both Adrian and Tom, uh, the brothers, at this, are terrorizing Cecilia in multiple ways. So see, that's what I'm saying, listeners. Spoilers right off the bat. We just, we just ruin it for you. But they're both terrorizing her in various ways throughout this film. And gaslighting is a term that is a very modern word that is used to describe psychological manipulation that makes a person question their own sanity, their memories, their judgment. Um, the intention is to create low self-esteem in someone so that it makes them easy to control. Cecilia even almost literally says this definition in the film at one point. She's talking and she says, this is what he does. He makes me feel like I'm the crazy one. And it's a real problem. And I don't know that it's something that is new, but it's definitely something that has become more talked about, I think, um, at least via social media and in public recently. So I was wondering for you guys specifically with relation to the gaslighting that's taken place and how this film kind of fits in our current Me Too climate, what parts of this traumatic tormenting that these guys are doing to her was the most distressing for you? And Coles, we'll let you kick us off. For me, the most distressing was the obvious. I mean, the physical abuse within itself. I mean, there's a scene where Cecilia is in the kitchen and she's just being punched and she's being thrown around and being dragged across the floor and it's it's never easy to watch scenes like that because in my life I've seen certain I've seen and had family members who were in abusive relationships and I've seen people like spouses who have dragged each other out of their front door you know firsthand so there's a traumatic experience to that and then there's also the aspect of thinking about a person who has to go through that every day of their life you know a person who wants to show love and care to the person who they think loves them but only just wants to see just only sees them as another person they can control or manipulate and be able to do it without any consequences or ramifications coming to them it's a very very horrifying experience you know just imagining that a person wakes up and just fears that that day hey I can get hit again. You know, this is not just a one-time thing. This is my daily life existence. For me, those were the worst parts. As far as the Me Too movement, I just like correlated to stories such as Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby. Guys with so much power and influence because they did all these great things in their respective careers. And that far, that was letting them skate off and get away with so many like moments of sexual assault and abuse and just horrific things. But they're able to get away with it just because they have the power and the influence and the money to silence anybody that they want to or blackball a, a victim who wants to go and tell somebody. 
for me, the Invisible Man is definitely talking about the Invisible Man, but also I felt that Cecilia, she was invisible herself when she tried to reach out for help. And when she tried to go to the people she depended on, no one was believing her. Everybody was calling her crazy, which goes back to what Aaron was talking about with gaslighting. So for me, that was the link I carried on to the modern-day Me Too movement. Yeah, Kalesh, you make a really great point with regard to how those in power get that way because of the way that they've impacted the culture, impacted their respective businesses. And Adrian is no different. He's done so much in the field of optics. He's where he's depicted as someone who has made great contributions. And so because of that, just like with Weinstein and Cosby as examples, we have, this person who has the ability to manipulate, to control. And I think that when you look at Cecilia's life and how we see her in this two hour block of time, not literally, obviously, but in the, in the two hours that we see her over the course of several weeks, we get to realize that she lost her identity. As you mentioned, Kalash, she was invisible to him. She was an object. And the scene that really stood out to me with regard to that was just after she gets the news that Adrian has left her this money. She has celebrated with, um, with James and Sydney, giving Sydney the money in her account, opened up a new checking account. And it's, it's a really great scene. I, I love that scene where they're just celebrating and you see the camaraderie, you see the friendship, you see that comfort level that they have. And then later on, you see her in the guest room or wherever she's staying, and she's putting up these nice clothes. Camera slowly pans. And I know that I'm supposed to be looking for something that's supposed to be moving, but I don't see anything. And her reaction to that, turning around after she kind of feels the clothes, wondering what's happening or wondering if there's something wrong, it reminded me of something that was said either earlier or later, and that's that... When she describes Adrian, she says, he didn't let me be who I was, essentially. He didn't, he dressed me a certain way. I couldn't be the person that I actually was. And so even in the moment where we see her buying new clothes and being, trying to be who she wants to be, there's still this remnant of who he is, even beyond death, at least at the time that she understands it. And seeing the expression on her face, this blank stare, looking at the clothes, looking around, and being paranoid, but I think at the same time also feeling like Adrian will never leave her. Even in death, he's still around. And of course, the movie gets a lot more literal with that because he is invisible and he's probably there. We don't see him. But I think that scene in particular really stands out to me in terms of reflecting this woman who wants to embrace who she actually is but still can't because of all that torment, all that abuse, and all that history with this man that she was with for so long. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we have a similar reasoning or effect of our chosen moment, I guess, but mine is a different scene that gets to the same point of that, Patrick. It's, for me, the most distressing thing is when she has been experiencing the the trauma from him. She's already gone through the, the frying pan catching on fire. And I believe it's after the first attack, which is incredibly shot, of course, um, from a 
camera work perspective and a special effects perspective, it's extra distressing because of how well it's performed and done. It is absolutely terrifying. And she is trying to find him. And she puts all of this stuff on the ground. I think it's coffee. I think she takes out the coffee and she pours coffee beans all over the floor so that she can see footprints. And she backs up into a corner and she sits down and she just looks out of a, looks into a doorway and there's nothing there, right? But we know that he's there, but we can't see him. And she starts talking to him at that point. And she says, why me? Money and power could buy you anyone and anything. And she's pleading with him and she's literally begging him. And she says, you've already taken it all. Like why? And she's, she's just pleading and begging for him to stop and, and asking, why do you keep doing this? Like, like what is the end goal here? What is it that I can give you that you couldn't just buy or get from somebody else? Like, why could you possibly want me now? I'm completely broken. You've completely ruined me. There's no reason you should even desire me anymore. So why would you do this? And she truly just doesn't understand. And that's the point. Like, it's not something anybody can understand from a logical perspective because it's not about logic. It's about control and it's about power. It's about someone being able to get off on exerting that over someone else. And that's all. That's really all it is. And just, of course, the acting, I think, throughout the whole film she is what elevates this and makes it special because it's terrible. Like her acting is so good that it's painful as heck to watch her. I mean, like I'm in tears. I just, I just want to jump through the screen and rescue her. I just want to grab her and run out of that room and, and have her be safe. And you can't. And to have her sitting there talking to what we see as an audience as a blank doorway, begging the blank doorway to just, please leave me alone. Like there's nothing I can do for you um, was really, really hard for me. And I think that this is a really fun, that's not the right word for it, but a really clever and smart way to retell this story for the Me Too era, specifically because the original film, the original stories of The Invisible Man are centered on a male who turns himself invisible and ends up as part of going invisible, becoming a little bit of a maniac. You know, there's various reasons in the different tellings of the story. Some are because the drugs that he used to go invisible, you know, had a side effect, which kind of made him go nuts and he starts killing people and such. But like, it's always from his perspective and we never get to see this story from the victim's perspective. And this movie is entirely from Cecilia's point of view. Like we don't look at it from Adrian's. Like we, we don't know what he's, what, what he's thinking at any given time. We're not inside of his head. And that's so different. Um, and I'm glad that we're getting stories like this that tell us what it's like to be in a woman's head in these situations, because we've watched abusive stories for ages and decades from the abuser's perspective and called that great entertainment. Um, but this is something that can be not only great entertainment can also, I, I think can hopefully be informative for audiences. I, I did wonder if you guys thought that there was any sort of therapeutic nature for this. Like I, I, I maybe this is something we can't even really talk to because unless we've been abused ourselves, 
But I, I was curious because, you know, this can be a very triggering movie for someone that has been through this situation. I would imagine it would be almost impossible to watch this. And so I wonder if, did anybody come away from it thinking that there was a value to it? I say there's a value once you get to like the ending and you see like someone be able to um, take back their life and like so-called get retribution on their abuser. I could see that being like kind of therapeutic or like maybe a kind of revenge fantasy that a lot of victims would like to live in. Um, as far as for me, the whole film, you know, until that last third act just feels very like dark and, and grim and like you know you're you're constantly feeling just like really sorry and sad for cecilia and whatever she's going through i mean seeing like another spoiler seeing her sister get killed in front of her you see her like she's about to lose her life to to prison or potentially get executed i mean her friends are turning away from her because of adrian's actions i mean the whole film is just a smorgasbord of more and more bad stuff happens to Cecilia, and you're kind of wondering, like, where is this going to end? How is she able, going to be able to find her way out of it? And so for me, I didn't really feel that therapeutics of that release until the final frame, which luckily saved the film from just being tragic altogether. Yeah, when I look at the movie as a whole, I don't think of it as something as an exploration in trauma or as a way to find redemption in that kind of abuse. I think... Like you said, Coles, it feels kind of like a revenge fantasy where you are cheering on Moss's character to say, I hope he dies. I hope that whoever's the bad guy gets it. And for a suspense horror film, this really does work in that regard. It's very familiar to those who are familiar with the, that type of genre. I think that what, what the movie does is it touches on those Things that we understand uh, with regard to where we are as a culture in our Me Too movement, but I don't see it as anything beyond even a light commentary. It's really more entertainment than anything else. Now, that being said, I don't know what that's like. I'm not sitting here firsthand saying or even thirdhand saying I know what it's like to be physically, emotionally abusive or abused, but at the same time, this is one of those movies that I think was built around entertainment first with familiarity kind of supporting it to create that interesting narrative because this really is her story. It's not about Adrian. It's about her, which is definitely different from its uh, original source material. And I think that's what gives it a nice fresh take is that we see it from that end versus him. Totally agree with both of you. And I think for me, the the main takeaway that I thought of in terms of how can we view this film as something of a learning experience or how can it change our way we view abusive situations versus just watching it as an entertaining plot for a horror movie. And it is tied to these relationships that Cecilia has with her sister, Emily, her friend, the cop, James, and his daughter, Sydney. And I want to know what you guys or how you guys felt about these relationships, first of all. But uh, for me, what they provided in her life, one of the critical things ties into that question I just asked, because I think through them and through the way that they react to Cecilia in this situation is the way that we can look at it and say, 
oh, hey, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to just write someone's craziness off. Maybe we shouldn't be pushy to get someone out the door to the mailbox. Maybe we need to do things differently. And, and I'm not saying that necessarily what James is doing is right or wrong or whatever. I think, but, but watching them go through that experience with her is for me the learning experience that someone who hasn't been through abuse can take away from this so that if they ever are in that situation where they're the friend, they're the family member, this movie gives you a, a good perspective of, Hey, like this is what it could look like on an abuser's standpoint from an abuser's standpoint if you treat them this way. Um, and I, and I really appreciated that in the way that this film does it because it's not all one way. It's not all them completely just writing her off. They clearly love and they clearly care about her, but they're also dealing with the reality of the situation. And it's in this fuzzy area that real life happens in where it's tricky and, and it's hard not to hurt the other person, but to also try and be there for them in this situation. So I really enjoyed how that played out. And I, so I thought that the three family and friends here were absolutely critical to her survival. Ultimately, um, even though some of the decisions they made were not helpful at times and, and were dismissive of what she was experiencing because they couldn't see it and they couldn't believe it. But did you guys get that same sense that without them, this ends a completely different way. Yes, I got that. Uh, I got that exact same, you know, image when I saw the different scenes with, you know, her sister and her friends. Um, if you have seen the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and usually there is a point in the um, the contest where the the person who's answering who's answering the questions eventually comes to a point where he just has no other options like he doesn't really know the answer he can't figure it out so they give him the option of a lifeline and that's what cecilia's friends and her sister were they were lifeline they were a safe haven they were connection they were um strength you know they were giving her a reason to fight this to not succumb to the the grip of depression and despair you know um the scene where of course when she was when they were like Tell them, like, hey, at least you walk to the mailbox. You know, it may not seem big for you, but that's a big step. You know, they're giving her just that positive energy and love that she was not getting from her relationship with Adrian. And no matter what anyone says, contrary to this statement, every human is always looking to be connected to someone. I mean, that's what's powered our species for the time we've been on Earth, where we're looking to connect with someone. People say that they don't mind being lonely, but trust me, lone, being lonely sucks. And, you know, having someone in your lowest depth, you know, who's able to sit there, guide your hand through everything, un listen and not wait to respond, but just listen to you and understand what you're going through and just being a confidant. Um, it was, it was beautiful. I love that aspect of the film. The other thing that I think was really great with regard to those relationships is on the opposite side of that. We also see that they have lives apart from her and how her illness, her situation affects them in certain ways. You know, it's one of those things where, for instance, the email that she supposedly sends to her sister completely betrays her. And obviously she didn't write it, but you could tell there's some tension there because there's pressure for 
Emily as well. I mean, she's taking care of this woman that has been mentally and physically abused, but she also has her life. And then you have James and Sydney who are trying to take care of each other. James is a single dad and Sydney's trying to go to this amazing college. And there's that scene where Adrian or Tom or whoever apparently slaps Sydney. And now you've immediately lost this trust. It's like, what just happened here? Uh, that was almost my connecting point because I was like, oh my gosh, what just happened here? And so in a, in a lot of ways, we're getting the sense that Cecilia's not a burden, but she's definitely an eyesore to an extent because she has, whether she means to or not, disrupted their life. I mean, she is a person that they have to take care of, that they need to take care of. Now, they want to, but it's as if you're taking care of an elderly parent. You know, there's nobody else that's going to take care of that person. And yes, you do it out of love, but I felt a little bit of a sense of obligation because you have someone who is their sister, who she says at the dinner table scene, you've always been strong. I need you to be strong for me. And you could see that expression in Emily's face where she's just kind of both proud and at the same time kind of exhausted because she doesn't know that she can do that. And obviously she doesn't get that chance. But I think on that other end, while we do see them supporting her, we also see that they have to be able to live their life and they have to be able to move forward with her alongside her in support of her. But James still has to take care of his daughter and Emily still has to live her life. And that's depicted in a way that I think is pretty realistic of what it means to take care of someone that you care about, but that you cannot fix them. You can't make their problems go away. You're just there riding that roller coaster with them as much as you can, but you have your life that you have to be able to, you have to do some self care as well. And I think that was depicted pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with you there. And it, it can almost even be challenging in a sense because this is an unrealistic situation that we are putting forth. So while I made the case that it could be seen as a way to help learn how to treat someone when they're going through these experiences, if someone is going through some of these experiences, there isn't really an invisible man um, in the you know realistic sense that there is actual person there that is doing the tormenting in physical spaces. It could be a mental health issue that you're dealing with. And that makes this very, very hard because trying to, I think, connect people with resources is the number one thing and not trying to fix it yourself. Uh, I, I struggle with this, guys, because I'm a fixer. Uh, and my relationships with women have always, I've been told that kind of all the time, like, don't fix it. Don't just, just don't try to fix it. Maybe it's a man thing in general, um, a male general general like uh, you know thing that we try to do many of us but i just always do i'm like i, I just you tell me something's wrong and i jump into oh I'm, I'm i'm hardly sometimes i have to stop myself and listen because i'm immediately trying to solve the problem for you um and and i think the movie helps me to see that that would not be the best way to approach this because i would be jumping into solve it mode instead of listening maybe connecting to resources, hoping to take this seriously 
while not trying to take it seriously in a way that I think I can fix it for you. Um, and maybe that would have helped get her where she needed to be a little sooner. But yes, I, I really love these relationships, Patrick. Um, that scene with Sydney is awful. It's absolutely horrific when she gets, I, that was the most, I like actually screamed out, like not screamed like in horror, but I was like upset, very mad that that was taking place. And especially the, I hate to say brilliant, but it's brilliant in a manipulative, awful way. What he does there to essentially frame Cecilia for being the one that slaps her. Like that is, it it just, it was so hard to watch those relationships deteriorate based on information that we factually knew to be false as an audience. But as characters, all they know is in their world, it's factually true because of it's an email from Cecilia. So of course it's from Cecilia, right? There's no reason to doubt that. Um, that was really painful and hard. And I, I actually thought I wanted to put, put note here that I, I really liked the actor choice for James. I'm not familiar with the actor. Uh, he's not someone that is a well-known actor in my opinion, but I really liked his performance. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, he's in, I think, one of the newer episodes of uh, Black Mirror. I think. Oh, is he? Yeah, and I think... And he was also recently in an episode of This Is Us. So he's been around. The actor that I've seen him in several things. He's really good. Yeah, um, he's also in Straight Outta Compton as MC Ren. Oh, okay. Coles, thank you. See, I did not remember that at all. Go figure. Um, I'll have to rewatch it then and, and check out his performance in that because I always like kind of what I feel like is discovering someone and. Yeah. Even if I'm discovering it for, my, for myself, you know what I mean? But like, I, I thought that the casting was across the board, just really well done here. Mm-hmm. So I want to know what you guys make of the ending. Was Adrian ever going to be perceived as innocent? So what happens? We see Cecilia escape. She's being chased by this man. She eventually tracks him down and kills him, and she finds out it's Tom. Tom has tied up Adrian in the basement. Adrian is supposedly this innocent man who was framed by his brother, and now Cecilia has to try and recover from this trauma that she faced. So do you think before she ends up going through with her plan to ultimately... I would say kill him. Do you think that the world would have perceived him as innocent? I mean, obviously Cecilia never would have, but do you think that he would have been able to just go on with his life and continue everything as if nothing had ever happened? And then do you think that Cecilia, based on the way that the actions play out, is able to heal from the trauma that she faced I think for me, we live in an age of social media, um, tweet, Twitter conspiracy theories, Facebook conspiracy theories. So for me, for this guy to do what he did, like just be embroiled in this controversy of um, his brother kidnapping him and the faking his own death and then all of these different questions and issues, I think it would have been, I think he would have to like carry this mark for the rest of his life. And I think if you would give the police maybe a little bit more time, just in case they didn't close the case off, if you give them a little bit more time, I think they would have found some, put some holes into his theory and his little spiel about how he's kidnapped his brother and 
probably could have put him away in prison. Um, but the film kind of does make you believe, especially when it comes to the final dinner scene, that, hey, this dude just might get away with this. I mean, because, like, once again, he has... He's a optic. He's a brilliant optics guy. You know, he's known in the industry as being one of the richest guys in the world. And they don't really say that, but you can see by his house, the technology he makes. He's got a lot of money, so he probably could have skated by, silenced up some people. You know, did this and did that. Maybe make another um, technological advancement, and then this all would have been brushed under under the rug. So, for a way, he could have gotten away, but I think that. He could have been found out if they get the police a little bit more time. They don't call the case off, get the police a little bit more time to work through the holes and the little um, BS he was spilling. Then yes, they they catch him. But for me, as far as Cecilia's happiness, I don't. I think she's on the road to that. I think that's what the final frame is signifying when she looks towards the camera and she's smiling a little bit. It kind of actually brought me to mind of Miss Sumner last year because Miss Sumner ended with that same kind of ending. But I. I think that she's going to be forever haunted by what she's went through. Because, I mean, when you go through trauma like that, it becomes ingrained within your DNA. There's a thing they um, they say with generational trauma. Like if um, your ancestor or if your relative went through some trauma like your mother, then it gets passed down to you. So I think that she might have to end up becoming a victim of that just because, I mean, with all the abuse and the torment that she went through and like her life almost being gone in prison – you don't just get over that very quickly. It takes a very long time to heal from that. But I do think that she is on the way to healing, even if the way that she was able to do it is, you know, it's outright murder. But as an audience, you kind of like just connect with and you're like, hey, she she deserves that win. She deserves that dub. So I think she's on the path to healing, as all I would say. I look at Adrian as someone who is a man of optics. And I think that he could find a way and would have found a way to push this under the rug. Um, independent of the world of social media. We, I mean, we get text messages in this movie. We get some of that technology and we get hints of the fact that he is this powerful guy. I think he has the ability to hide something because the fact is Cecilia wasn't anybody important. In fact, I think it was said that he's the only person, she's the only person he couldn't control, which is why he wanted her so bad. Yeah. Like he couldn't mold her into something that, that he wanted. And so he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of her or he couldn't dispose of her easily. He didn't want to. She was a challenge for him. But when it comes to Cecilia, I don't know that she would ever recover from this because of the extreme measures she had to take to, finish him to finish that story to come to completion when you make those kinds of decisions when you make that kind of action real when it's beyond just i'm thinking about doing this or i'm going to get as close to it as possible when you actually murder someone i don't know that she's ever going to be in a place where she can she's considered healthy I think she's always going to deal with this in some way, which is probably the case with anybody who has dealt with childhood trauma or adult trauma or any kind of abusive trauma, mental or physical. There's always going to be echoes of that in any relationship that you have. I don't see her in any kind of future relationship with a man by any means. I think she's going to live her life independently. I don't think she's going to be a man hater, but I think she's always going to be very, very wary of being around any kind of man that 
is in any kind of successful position. This is obviously me projecting my psychology on her, but I think that she found closure with him, but I don't know that she found closure with the repercussions of what he left her with, which in this case is a, a life that is going to have echoes of that abuse in any kind of relationship that she tries to get involved with. Yeah, I would agree with that. And we cheer typically in movies like this when the vigilante gets the come uh, you know, gives the abuser or the murderer or the criminal their comeuppance. And yet there is deep psychology in this movie, and that is what it's all about. And so it's it would be almost unfair to not address the fact that when you take a life, that changes you. And so even if she took a life for the right reason or for the reason that it was the only way to actually stop this action that he was performing on her because there was no other way for anyone to ever believe her and it would have just continued, that's going to change her forever. Uh, and, and in addition to the trauma that she experienced for years, like you said, Patrick, from being chased down and, and tormented and having watched her sister die in front of her from this man's hand, all of that I think is definitely going to play into it. And I, and I would agree with, with you, Colesse. I don't think that she has healed and I don't think that she necessarily will ever fully heal. I mean, this will always define, be a defining piece of who she now will be for the rest of her life. Like you can't go back and be Cecilia before this happened. You're forever Cecilia after this happened. And that's, um, that trauma will shape how she lives her life going forward. Now it doesn't have to be debilitating anymore. It doesn't have to control her, um, or drive her, you know, in a state of fear, but it will always have some effect on her decision making. Like you said, Patrick, as she's deciding things in the future, like relationships, um, or how close to be with just anyone in general, I would assume. So, um, I, I also don't think that Adrian would have all ever been perceived as, I'm sorry, I do think that Adrian would always have been perceived as innocent. I believe this is the world we live in that the man with the money without the evidence is going to be perceived as innocent. And I don't think that, I think that that's why Cecilia took the action she took because this is a tech guy. The narrative has been spun. I love Patrick that you're, you, I think you both actually picked up on this, but there's a great wordplay here in the fact that he is a man of optics. It's not about optics visually with the eye. It's about optics of the narrative optics of spinning the story for social media and for the news. And he knows what he's doing. And he's done that in a way that makes it impossible based on evidence for people to really doubt for the most part, what his role in this was. It just looks like a guy who got, you know, betrayed by his brother. And he looks like the victim. He's made himself out to look like the victim. And I think that we still live in a culture that there's enough people that would would definitely not question that in the slightest. And that's, I think, what drives her action is knowing that that's the case. Because there was not a world in which he was going to suddenly get taken to court and get taken down by the truth. You know, I, this is not a situation where there's hundreds of witnesses 
that he has abused in the past that can come out and speak against him with firsthand stories. There's no evidence. And so, um, I, yeah, I think what she does is take the only action that really could be taken against this man. Yeah, he's got a lawyer for our brother, for goodness sake. I mean, <laughs> right. it, he's just, I mean, that's an ace in the hole right there. Well, he did. <laughs> yeah, okay, but for the sake of the, the story as a whole, at, at some point he had a, a brother who was a lawyer, who was a good lawyer, apparently. Apparently. And, and um, a jellyfish, but a lawyer nonetheless. I love that line. That's so good. She's, she's like, you're him, but without a spine. Like, oh, <laughs> I, I did. I, I gave it one of the, I gave it one of the, oh, like Ooh, in the theater. Mic drop right there. Well, so when we talk about these, superpowers which is this is essentially a superpower when you are talking about someone that has become invisible i wonder what you guys thought about that like what is appealing about being invisible it's always one of the options when people ask that question what what superpower would you want to have if you could have something would you be invisible would you want to you know have telekinesis would you be able to read people's minds would you want to be able to fly but invisibility is always one of those options so what is appealing about that and also Side question to that is just, I was blown away by the twist in this movie. Okay. Like I was not expecting it. And I, and I don't know. I didn't watch any of the trailers. I didn't know that he was a man who was a scientist in optics. When I went into this, I just, when it was discovered to be a suit, I lost my crap because I was so shocked and it worked so well for me. I thought it was literally one of the most brilliant ways to remake a story like this and to make it fresh and modern without losing any of the effect that it would have had had he been truly invisible. And in fact, in many ways, makes him more dangerous and more terrifying because he can go in and out of the state. He's not stuck perpetually in a state of invisibility like these stories have been in the past. So I thought just from a writing standpoint, like one else choose to, choice to use that suit was like critical to me, like absolutely falling in love with this movie. And it's one of the things that along with upgrade, those type of choices, his way of looking at sci-fi and, and taking something that we've seen before, but showing it to a slightly different, like he did with STEM and now with the suit, I think that he's a brilliant mind, and I mean, he has my full attention for anything he's going to do, but um, I'm curious how, you, how the suit worked for you guys, but also, why do you think we want to be invisible? Like, what is so cool about that? For some people, invisibility can, the visibility power can, like, support the inner rebellion, um, inner rebellion, you know, wishes they may have. I mean, sometimes people just want the have that thrill of being able to do something that they're not supposed to do without the threat of being captured. So there's one aspect of it. I mean, invisibility can be either used for good things or for bad things. See, for me, I would use invisibility just to go and just travel all around the world. Like, you know, just be able to walk through the TSA and head on a plane without nobody noticing I'm there and just go to these different places and everything. Now, that may sound very illegal because I'm not paying any money, but I'm not hurting anybody. You know, I'm just um going out and just seeing a lot of places I wouldn't have the opportunity to see without being, without, you know, being invisible and having to pay all that money or going to concerts or like sporting events or different things like that. So for me, I would see invisibility for maybe some 
good things, you know, not exactly the bad things that it may entail. It depends on the person who has the power. But I always thought invisibility was always very cool. Like, I would love to, like, maybe play a prank on, like, friends and everything like that with me just being invisible. That would be another fun aspect of it. Um, for me, the tech was, it was great. It was, like I said, like you said, Eric, it blew my mind, too, because I had saw the trailer, and there was a scene in the trailer where me and my girlfriend were watching, and she throws paint onto him, and it looks like it had, like, golf ball. Like, he had the outline of a golf ball for a head and a body. And me and my girlfriend started laughing. She's like, is he golf ball, man? Like, how are they going to explain that? And, and I was like, there has to be a reason why he looks like that. There's got to be a reason. If they don't explain it, then I have to drop it down a star. But then they get to the scene, and I saw when Cecilia walks into his um, work office and everything. I was like, wait a minute. Don't tell me it's a suit. And then they show that it's a suit, and I was like, wow. It was excellent. It was excellent. Um, The one thing I was really worried about was how were they going to to make him invisible because it's like it it can't be like a scientist like an old-timey scientist just going through a scrap old scrapbook looking for a certain chemicals to mix up it would have been it would have felt kind of cheesy for me so but i'm glad that um the director um how do you pronounce his name again i don't want to mispronounce it lee wanell lee wanell yes lee wanell i'm a like i said i'm a big fan of his i love upgrade i love the way that he can take these um sci-fi standards and kind of just create a new vision for them that you know that an audience member like me couldn't predict and seeing it that it was in a suit it kind of reminded me of like james bond for some reason like you know a spot like they would create an invisible suit for james bond to use on a mission but this guy is using it just to torment and abuse people so it, it was all bad for that but i did love you know the way that the optics looked the optic cameras look it looked like eyes it was just kind of like a, a weird kind of like look to it like there were eyes all over your suit and everything and then when it starts malfunctioning you see like the the, the black eyes come back again and he goes back clear i thought that was very cool because it's like almost like a little glitch walking around a little glitch and everything like that um i thought it was great um a very nice updated version of the invisible man lore of how he becomes to be maybe not james bond in an invisible suit but definitely ethan hunt i can see that yeah. And when I look at the appeal of being invisible, I think that the movie does something that maybe isn't necessarily obvious when you think about what could I do when I'm invisible playing pranks on people. But the fact is the, the essence of that is that you can make someone take the blame. You, and again, the two scenes that really stand out to me are the slap and the the death of her sister and in both of those instances because you don't see the actual perpetrator there the only person that's there you see what your eyes see seeing is believing in that regard and so i think that when it look when you take the idea of being invisible it's that control that he wasn't able to get when he was visible he now has that as the invisible man because of his ability to be able to manipulate the situation to control what's happened. I mean, the fact is the scene that um, I saw the trailer several times because, you know, when you go to movies for a podcast, you're kind of forced to watch the trailers unless it's tenant, in which case you yell and scream and go la 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 and scare the people next to you because you don't want to see that trailer at all. But when I was watching it. There were a couple of scenes that actually changed the scene where the stove catches on fire. There were a couple of other things that moved around 
in that particular scene that didn't happen in the final cut. Also, there were a uh, the the artwork or the 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 photo that we're using for our banner of the handprint on the shower did not happen. So when I look at that, I think about the fact that Adrian is using his invisibility to create a sense of this duality mentally for Cecilia. Like she is like, is this really happening? Is this not? And then even after, for instance, the slap happens, I would imagine that because she's so tormented by this, she probably wonders, did I slap her? Did I do that? Was I out of my mind? Because I'm thinking she probably thought, well, maybe I just lost it for a minute. I wouldn't have done that. Why would I have done that? But then she starts doubting herself. And so I think that there's some power behind that. With regard to the tech, I thought that the suit itself was pretty phenomenal. And I think those were cameras. But I think what it is is the technology around that centers around like refracting light and being able to manipulate light and things like that. So when what I think Bonnell does really well is he hits on that fringe science that this could exist in the world that we live in, but we're not quite there yet. It's kind of a Tesla mentality, this this type of thing where you look at the tech that's out there and goes, you know, we're not quite to hoverboards yet, but we're getting there. We're not quite to flying cars yet, but we're getting there. And this and Upgrade give us a hint of things that could exist in the future that are kind of cool, but they're also kind of dangerous. It's a little bit of Black Mirror kind of sitting in these two stories. And I think that's what's appealing is because we want to be able to connect with that. We want to be able to say that's not 2015 Back to the Future Part 2 from 1985. That's 2015. That's like three years from now where we're actually seeing some of the technology that's coming around. And I think Upgrade and The Invisible Man really hint at that, that we could get to this place where this technology does exist and it could get to that point. That's, yeah, that's, I completely agree with you. A hundred percent. Like that's exactly what it is. It's, it's that fringe, just believable enough. That's to my liking. That's the best sci-fi for me is I believe this is something that could feasibly happen in my lifetime, but just on the edge of my lifetime. And that to me is like brilliant science fiction because I'm like, I have to think about the actual implications of it and I can't divorce myself from it and think of it as fantasy or unrealistic in every way. Um, it just gives it a, a much more powerful heft to it. And you're absolutely right. Like I, I would not be surprised if this suit is try is somebody tries to create this thing, you know, and, and is not somewhat successful in some form or fashion of doing this. I mean, it, it probably works out like to some extent. I mean, I can't imagine it would be working in the way that it does in the movie, but there's, there's some truth to it and that makes it all the more scary, I think. Uh, but yeah, it's just uh, such a, an incredible construction and device of, of a way to make him invisible and to make the monster aspect of this character and this villain not in the invisibility so much as in the actual, like the actual personal choices that he is making. He's a monster because of the person he is um, and not because of the superpower. That just is a tool 
that he is able to use to his advantage, but he's a monster without it, essentially. Well, lastly, Universal Pictures has tried to start a dark universe before, so they've had the rights to these monster movies for a while. We got a few good ones back in the day with The Mummy, but there was never a, a long, good, rebooted version of this universe where we got multiple stories and multiple characters coming back with really good films. They tried a few years ago uh, with a reboot of The Mummy with Tom Cruise. That was one of the bigger disasters of the last decade, box office-wise, and it was it was not good. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was it was not good. It was very bad. <laughs> and uh, so I wondered, what do you think about the prospects going forward for the Universal Monsters? Do you, They do have some more in the hopper. There is a movie being made. I can't remember who's making it, but it's um, like a team-up flick that has several different monsters in it, several different characters. There's actually an Invisible Woman movie in the works that is not tied to this, so it's not Elizabeth Banks being the Invisible Woman, um, but that's being made by Elizabeth... I'm sorry, it's not Elizabeth Moss being the Invisible Woman, it is Elizabeth Banks making that movie um, that will probably be very different in tone. But what do you think this can do for the universal brand of monster flicks? What it can do is um, with the, with the critical and hopefully, you know, the box office success of this film, it opened at number one this weekend. Hopefully it can show universal that, Hey, maybe we should just keep with these stripped down, you know, kind of bare bones, like low budget, almost close to art house and equally as entertaining just horror films like let's not worry about trying to connect frankenstein with the wolfman or dr jekyll mr hyde with um the mommy um there was one crossover in the 40s where frankenstein met the wolfman and no one remembers or even talks about that to this day just to show how comical and campy it can be um the invisible man does well because it's just focused on really telling a good story you know first off you know it's not about not everybody can be an MCU or even a DCEU. You know, those um franchises are different because they are based on stories where characters have crossed over and come into each other's universe from time to time. I, I don't think we've ever seen that happen successfully with the universe of horror monsters. I mean, they're already scary enough in their own. They have their own positives, their own like little um narratives that they can go on for their own and not have to worry about setting up for a next movie or for a sequel or for a, a cross of it just feels very cheap and not very elegant when it comes to um the horror genre itself i mean there are films like freddy vs jason which work very well but universal horror monsters is different it's a different month it's a different beast when it comes to lore in cinema and I think you just do better off just having these as single stories, no crossovers. Just let directors, directors who have a chance to make a name for themselves and who are all about making good cinema product, just let them be free in the playground, no interference or anything, and just let them go to work. Yeah, I don't have much more to add with regard to that. I think that releasing in February is always a good thing because you're not trying to compete with big blockbusters in the April-May time frame. And at the same time, you want to make sure that your stories don't have to necessarily mimic their source material. The source material can be just that. The Invisible Man is a great example. It's a an interesting twist on a familiar story. But the thing is, is 
I know that both of you have seen, well, I know Aaron, you've seen the 1933 version recently. Having not seen it, I don't have anything to necessarily compare it to. But when you look at the, the reboots using the universal monsters or universal, the dark universe as a baseline, I think it's worth allowing your creators to tell their own stories using this just as source material, not trying to recreate something and bringing their own directorial writer flair to it, you know, putting a JJ Abrams flair on whoever, you know, and I think that Lee one L is a fantastic example of how that could be very successful and allowing these stories to get a chance to breathe without necessarily having to say, okay, they need to interconnect the DCEU, I think, is doing this now. They're saying, look, let our creators tell their stories. Let them use our source material to tell fantastic stories and not have to worry about trying to sync up with each other. And what's happening is you're getting really great individual narratives and not having to figure out where this fits into that. I think that's a great approach. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think... I think your guys are spot on. I think that when you start off trying to create movies in a universe, it's going to be a failure the vast majority of the time. I think that the MCU is a standard that is a completely unique thing that is going to be very, very difficult to ever replicate. And if you want to eventually bring characters together because it is a natural fit and it makes sense later down the road, I think that's fine. But I I can't get behind it being the driving force for that. And I just don't see that happening in this movie. This feels like a completely standalone picture that doesn't need to rely on any other monster movies, any other things, uh, but yet easily could see a world in which the way that the science is depicted could tie into some very similar type of sciencey version, current modern science version of a Dr. Frankenstein story. And a, a light crossover could kind of happen. Like you could, you could tell stories that exist in the same timeline that don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. And I think that, for me, is something that I would much, much prefer. I do definitely want to see more. Like, we are left with Elizabeth Moss in a state that essentially tells us there could be more. And if that's the case, like, I'm on board 100% for that. Yeah, I look at this as a big version of Black Mirror. I know I keep going back to this, but the fact is you could have a Frankenstein story that is a modern tale that hints at this world of technology because that's what black mirror is. It's basically not intentionally. I think they do it for Easter egg purposes, but there are hints of particular technology that exists in multiple episodes, but it's not necessarily called out upon. And I think that the invisible man, particularly the sci-fi tech could be, hinted at in other stories it could influence indirectly maybe the creation of frankenstein or something of that regard and i like that i like that it's not dependent on it but that it could influence it 
All right, guys. Well, that has been a really fun conversation. Uh, enjoyed that immensely. And I went to get to connecting points because that's where we're at now. So, Patrick, yours comes first in the movie timeline. So I'm going to let you start us off and then we'll go to Coles after you. Well, it's no secret that I'm not a huge fan of horror. I've really kind of grown to appreciate it more as we've done the show. And I'm sincerely grateful for that. It's good to be able to experience this side of the filmmaking, film experiencing world, whatever you want to call it. And when I was looking at the movie as a whole and trying to find the moment that gripped me, the moment that made me feel emotionally like kind of pumped up, it was the escape from the hospital. And it was not only technically well done, I love the way it starts where Cecilia starts trying to kill herself to provoke Adrian because she knows he's there. And then she stabs him with the pin that starts this whole ball rolling. We see his suit start breaking down. And then we see a series of really bad security guards trying to take this guy down. And the whole time, I'm looking at her when the camera pans to her and, and when we see her as someone who, she's not calm, but she's not freaking out. And so this whole sequence, all leading out to the parking lot in the pouring rain and seeing her confront her tormentor in this regard, and then leading up to the moment uh, where she she goes back to the house and eventually takes him down. There's this sense of power that I became very satisfied with, with her. And something that stands out to me about Cecilia is that from the get go, she is risking her life to save herself. That whole opening sequence where she's, where she's leaving the house (laughs) <laughs> I am like tiptoeing mentally myself with her as she's going through the house. And then she kicks the dog bowl. I'm like, oh my God, why'd you do that? Well, that echoes here in the escape, not obviously in that she's tiptoeing, but the fact that she has this forced confidence to be able to do all of this. Because in other movies, she could be the victim. She could be screaming. She could be just going just completely out of her mind trying to escape this. I felt like everything that she was doing was strategic. She was moving forward. She was never retreating when it came to the attacker. She was attacking him this whole time. She was always going forward. She was never running away from him. She was never trying to escape. She was always like, he needs to go down. He needs to go down. And that's something that you don't see a lot in maybe your typical horror, at least the typical horror that I'm used to. And I thought that was really refreshing because it said a lot about her character. And I don't know necessarily about her growth. I think there was really significance in terms of her growth because early on, she couldn't even leave the house to go get the mail. And here she was being forceful and being very forthcoming with going after what she thought was Adrian or what we thought was Adrian. And I thought that that was an incredible visual kind of reminder that she's growing that she's actually overcoming this trauma maybe it'll stay with her the rest of her life but i don't know that she could have done that weeks earlier when she had just escaped so she'd gone from being the victim to in a sense the 
kind of a pretext to being a victor in that regard. So I love that sequence. I thought it was technically really well done, uh, highly entertaining for sure. And at the same time, I think it spoke a lot to how she had grown as a character. It is it is one of the more exciting sequences. And those are a couple of things we actually didn't really talk much about. So brief tangent, I think. But the sound design is incredible. So I immediately went and marked down on my awards tracker that I keep throughout the year many different things for this film, but specifically for sound mixing. And the the way that the sound works in this movie is just awesome. The score is phenomenal. It sounds like a Hans Zimmer score and a, and a bong from Inception at, at a few times, but it's um, it's also very reminiscent of the work that the composer did with Hans Zimmer on Blade Runner 2049. You can hear that exact similar tone, um, but it's like amplified even louder here in a, in a little bit of a scarier way. Uh, it is just a wonderful, wonderful film on a sound level. And, and in the rain, that's what made, uh, triggered it when you were talking about it, Patrick. The way that it's shot, the visuals are amazing, the sound is amazing, uh, and I thought that the action sequences were incredibly cool. Like, the cinematography is so well done, special effects of the two sequences where the Invisible Man in the hospital that you're talking about during the escape, everything about that one, and then also the big fight in the kitchen, they are just amazing choreography done in a way where you truly don't see the thing that is fighting and it's freaking awesome looking. I mean, it is, it is so cool to watch and, and it while simultaneously being terrifying. Um, and I just, I really appreciated those aspects of the film. Yeah. For me, my connecting point was the final frame of the film. As I talked about earlier, I think what, um, the director does so well is that he gives, the entire frame over to Cecilia. This is her moment right here. And Elizabeth Moss' performance is just great, but I think what she does very well throughout the film is that she's able to communicate a lot of emotions through her facial mannerisms. Like, the way that she's able to, you know, have her eyes kind of wander up, there's a sense that, yes, she did get retribution. She This this really, this monkey is finally off her back. She doesn't have to face this anymore, the threat of this anymore. But then there's also that feeling of, you know... I'm still hurt from this. Like, this didn't fulfill everything. Like, the pain just doesn't go away with me getting rid of my tormentor. Now I have to go through a lifetime of working within myself to keep the past traumas of my life affecting, which it probably will, but affecting other relationships with people, you know, like a potential new boyfriend or maybe um friends and everything like that. And they might look into the newspaper and see that I'm connected with this person right here, this tech guy who killed, who well, supposedly killed himself, but we know that she killed him with the invisible suit. So she's going to have to deal with that all through her life, but also in the sense of that frame, you get like, this is really big for her. This is what she needed. This, The movie could not end without her getting her just due. It was just coming eventually, and I'm glad that it ended, the, the film ended out on a big victory such as that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, because mine is the same, and I, I love it as well, and both for Two reasons. One being the cool, fun, exciting factor of her carrying the suit out and knowing that that's a setup for a sequel and it being a sequel that I would highly, highly enjoy. But specifically for that final shot and what it means to her character and I think also to the audience because 
it is a testament to her incredible acting throughout the film, which, I mean, she is phenomenal. I, I cannot understate, or I can't overstate, I can't say enough, how amazing she is with those face, facial expressions, Colesse, that you're talking about. She does so much work with them, and it it really it puts so much of the other horror acting when you see characters are trying to be scared to shame because the way that she evokes terror with her face twitching and her body um, inability to stay still. And it's, it's so realistic um, and nerve wracking. And that final moment when she ultimately stops and takes that second to breathe deeply and exhale and a very small smile finally comes across her lips. Like the, the faintest of expressions, but it is so different than anything we have seen for the previous hour and a half on her face. Like she's never come close to something like that before. And so when we see it, it's that impactful. And I think it is also a moment where not just the character of Cecilia is finally getting to experience peace and safety for a first moment since the film starts, because the film starts with a bang. Like we are off and running from the very first frame. She is in the middle of her escape. It does not let up from at all. And so it's that first only moment the film gives us of peace, but it's also for the audience because the audience has been there with her throughout this whole thing. And we are equally saying, thank God, thank goodness. She's alive. Thank goodness. It's over. We're glad she's glad. And so we feel very connected to her in that moment. And so it is super powerful. And I think it is a just incredible way to end a film. And again, something that Lee Whannell has perfected, apparently, because he did the same thing in Upgrade, the final moments of Upgrade. It's got a little bit of a twist to it, but it is so freaking powerful what he does in that story, the way he ends it on an emotional level, that it leaves you with that frame in mind. And I just think that that is just top level filmmaking. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Feelin' Film. Kales, man, thank you for joining us on this particular episode. Where can people find you to chat more about this or other film related stuff? Uh, thank you and Aaron for having me on here. It's always um, a great experience. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the handle Black Nerd Magic, and you can find me on Facebook um, under my real name, Kales Davis. And also, I run a don't know if anyone's going to care, but I run a Tumblr blog called Super Black Nerd Magic, so you can check that out too. Fantastic. Well, coming up over the next several weeks, we stay theater bound, covering the newest Disney Pixar original film, Onward. Followed by The Way Back, not to be confused with the other movie that we've already covered that's pretty fantastic. This one is directed by Gavin O'Connor of Miracle Fame and starring Ben Affleck. Aaron Gilles, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, 
you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.